the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, where we will take a look at the lighter side of the news as part of our content today. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice, well, he's given up his office for the sake of the cause. We're glad to have you with us. Our interview of the week will be John Lott. He is the author of Gun Control Myths. You'll hear him later in the second hour of today's program. Taking a look at some of the headlines, China struck back on Friday, ordering the closure of the U.S. consulate in the western city of Chengdu, an apparent retaliation for the administration's recent order for Beijing to close its consulate in Houston with espionage accusations. Well, the White House says Chinese agents within the Texas consulate has been attempting to steal scientific data from facilities in the state, including the Texas A&M medical system. The U.S. accusations are groundless fabrications, the Chinese embassy in Washington said in a statement according to the New York Times. Beijing on Wednesday had promised to retaliate over the Houston shutdown order, which included an end-of-week deadline calling the U.S. move an unprecedented escalation. A radio host who refers to himself as Charlemagne the God, host of The Breakfast Club, blasted Joe Biden for calling President Trump the first racist president to be elected, continuing his verbal assault on the presumptive Democratic nominee after a tense verbal exchange with Biden in May. On Wednesday, Biden took aim at the president's alleged racism, suggesting it's historic compared with his predecessors. He said at the time, no sitting president has ever done this. No Republican president has done this. No Democratic president. We've had racists and they've existed and they've tried to get elected president. He's the first one that has, Biden said, end quote. Well, end quote, before I said Biden said. Anyway, Charlemagne uh, declared Biden's uh, Thursday donkey of the uh, donkey of the day for his comment. Um, other related developments, uh, the same host says that Biden is uh, an intricate part of the system that needs to be dismantled. Um, what have you done for me lately, I guess, is the line that should follow. Well, at an event announcing plans to deploy federal agents to major cities like Portland and Chicago to quell unrest, Attorney General William Barr noted this week that leading cause of deaths, deaths rather, among young black males is homicide. The principal danger to the lives of our inner city communities is violent crime. The leading cause of death for young black males is homicide. Every one of those lives matters, he said. Well, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, homicide is the leading cause of death in non-Hispanic black males ages 1 to 44. Homicide is the cause of 35.2% of deaths in black males aged 1 to 19 and 28.9% of black males ages 20 to 40. The next leading cause is unintentional injuries, followed by suicide for the younger age group and heart disease for the latter. Chicago removed the Columbus statue from Grant Park in the dead of night, and a Michigan man used phony faces to steal about 100 G's at a casino. A Florida massacre victim's funeral costs have been covered by the public's donations, according to the local sheriff. And a a Florida TV reporter thanks a viewer who spotted her cancer while watching a broadcast. 
In business news, Warren Buffett uh, has beefed up his Bank of America stake and the coronavirus is affecting gym memberships as many Americans just won't renew for a variety of reasons, I suppose. Well, speaking at the Richard Nick Presidential Library, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that if we bend the knee now, our children's children may be at the mercy of the CCP, referring to the Chinese government, whose actions are the primary challenge to the free world. Also from the story, Pompeo's address came a day after the FBI revealed that the Chinese government has implemented a program to secretly and illegally plant military researchers in several U.S. universities to pilfer sensitive materials. Earlier in the week, the State Department announced that China's consulate in Houston would be closed, and Pompeo says the complex has a hub of spying and IP theft. China has vowed retaliation, which we now know is the uh, closing of a U.S. consulate in one of their cities. Meanwhile, Hugh Hewitt points out that Trump will again run on the platform of America first and on rebuilding the economy he built uh, once until it was shuttered by the novel, uh, novel coronavirus. Trump will point to his buildup of the military budget, his uh, clear-eyed view of the Chinese government, a growing Navy, the Space Force, and revitalized nuclear deterrent. Walter Russell Mead says this, The U.S. relationship with the revisionist and possibly revolutionary neo-communist China can't simply be business as usual. Countries like China and Russia that claim they are actively seeking to undermine U.S. interests and counter American values need to be taken at their word. U.S. diplomats and agents must respond at attempts to extend hostile influence in strategically important countries and proactively defend American interests. Well, Portland has long preferred bikes over cars, and the increasingly, well, nutty city is now looking for ways to help rioters, reported by The Oregonian, which recently declared uh, all this talk about trouble in the streets a big hoax. Andy No, who's been there observing, says every night the entire street is shut down by rioters, and the city is worried about the barrier being partially on the bike lane. The city had made it very clear that it stands with rioters who want to burn that, bu- uh, that building and other buildings to the ground. So Portland City is demanding that the feds remove a fence that blocks a bike lane. Dan Henninger explains, it's hard to disagree that other than protecting federal facilities, Mr. Trump should let all of these smug Portlandia American cities stew in their own juices. I loved it when Portland's mayor, Ted Wheeler, said the federal agency's presence is actually legal leading to more violence and more vandalism. Where's Groucho Marx when we need him to make sense of nonsense? Well, the CDC says it's vital that schools reopen in the fall and gives guidelines to help schools do so safely, despite the fact that most have no intention of doing so. And hundreds of protesters gathered outside Chicago mayor's home demanding, of all things, at this time, she defund the police. Well, the Wall Street Journal to readers, we will not acquiesce to cancel culture. After noting some 280 of our Wall Street Journal colleagues signed and someone leaked a letter to our publisher criticizing the opinion pages, the editorial board responded with this. It was probably inevitable that the wave of progressive cancel culture would arrive at the journal as it has at nearly every other cultural business, academic, and journalistic institution. But we are not the New York Times. Most journal reporters attempt to cover the news fairly and down the middle. And our opinion pages offer an alternative to the uniform progressive views that dominate nearly all of today's media. Again, the Wall Street Journal to its readers and those who call for the cancel culture to be applied. Meanwhile, vandals defaced the home of Oakland's mayor. She answered by breaking a tie in the city council and voting to stop yet another cut to the police department. 
the president has canceled the RNC event in Florida, explaining that the rise of the coronavirus, we are setting an example. We don't want to have people so close together. So some other form of the RNC. And Dr. Fauci has thoroughly embarrassed himself with the first pitch in Washington, D.C. Who knew he was absolutely no idea how to throw a ball? One must see it to believe it. You can find it online. But I suppose someone who is a brilliant doctor in the throes of a um, worldwide pandemic can be excused for not being able to throw a pitch at a baseball game. Well, according to the New York Post, the Senate on Thursday passed a $740 billion defense spending bill that includes a provision to remove the name of Confederate leaders from military bases, setting up a showdown with the president who is opposed to that move. The GOP-controlled chamber overwhelmingly passed the legislation with a vote of 81 to 14, well over the number required to override a presidential veto, which the president threatened to wield last month in his bid to stop the bill. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are going to take a look at headline news at the top of each hour, and we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news in the middle. So hope you'll stay with us as James Blend will join me, and we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. We're also going to feature an interview of the week. John Lott joined me earlier this week with his um, book, Gun Control Myths. We'll talk a bit about what the book uncovers and why it's important. All of that coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. And by the way, did I mention that Christian News Northwest is now back in the print edition? If you have uh, come to uh, appreciate and enjoy Christian News Northwest and like holding that paper in your hands, it's now available. That's as of this month. So check that out in the usual outlets. Christian News Northwest, now in the paper edition. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Friday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. So we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news for the next couple of segments. And joining me to do just that is James Blend, who happens to be the producer of today's program. And he's also a big baseball fan. First of oh, all, yes. welcome. Did yes. you see the Fauci pitch last night? I did see the Fauci pitch. He definitely flattened the curve um, <laughs> and then bounced the curve a few times. So it kind of represents sort of what uh, COVID has looked like in the kind of what seems like it's completely down. It pops back up again. Uh, but uh, he, yeah, it, it wasn't quite as bad as his first pitch on COVID where the flu season was supposed to be worse, but uh, it was pretty bad. And among the, I mean, when I look at mentally some of the, uh, and you can find them, you know, a lot of different places uh, like YouTube and stuff of the worst uh, celebrity first pitches ever, yeah. it, it's going to be on that list. But I think at this point he has the goodwill of the nation um, that uh, it may not make it onto that list for a little while. He may have some grace. Before you know, you he wonder sits next why, to 50 Cent. Yeah. <laughs> why would you invite someone who is in the throes of a worldwide pandemic, who clearly is an academic, he's a medical professional, you know, he doesn't have time, I'm guessing, to do a lot of, you know, pitching the ball uh, or working out and that sort of thing, and, and be surprised if he doesn't throw very well. I mean, I could have done better. Uh, but <laughs> it, was, it was that bad. But, you know, give him some... Uh, Give him some room. The guy's yeah, been busy. He's had, he's had some stuff on his plate. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to deny that. And I, I, you know, I certainly don't. Uh, I'm not going to sit there and point and laugh. But it was more. I think the same thing. It's kind of like, why did they ask and why did he agree to do it, knowing the constraints that he would likely have on his time? 
I'm sure for PR, it's probably good for him to get out from under the issue of coronavirus because his reputation has sort of been on the line. So it was probably a good thing for him to step out into a different environment, but just didn't go quite as well as I think he or the team had hoped. And you don't think about how bad it looks until you've pitched really badly and then there's the fallout from it. So hopefully this uh, too will pass very quickly. Now, this is one of the weirdest baseball seasons that we've seen to date uh what did you watch the game and what do you think about how you know, it's being I watched, rolled out i watched a little bit there were two games last night um certainly more uh amped up for the games today especially because my team is making yeah. their debut uh this afternoon and uh the um it's you know I watched some games last weekend when they're having pra- you know practice games and uh it's a very different atmosphere without fans um uh, it's a very different feel um but um you know it's still baseball it's still a distraction and i think especially as we're in month 84 of our quarantine at this point um you know it, it is a very welcome distraction of uh being able to see something new and different every day and enjoyable hopefully depending on how you know, your team plays but is- yeah yeah, my understanding is they were going to try to use some fan noises. Either they were going to create uh, fan sounds or they were going to actually uh, mic up fans and you could hear people responding to different plays. Was there any of that in the game yesterday? Games I didn't yesterday? see much of that in the game. In what I watched yesterday, I know that um, I just uh, was sent a link via email uh, for the game that I'm going to be watching coming up, uh, which is it's it's an online app called Cheer at the Ballpark. And I have three buttons here in front of me. I can't hear them, but it's a boo, a cheer, and a clap. Uh, and supposedly they are going to use that for um, the volume of which they're how the how much of each of those things uh, they put over the sound system. Now, the, now the audio that you're hearing when you watch a game is actually from a video game called MLB The Show. Um, and, um, so it's actual fake real crowd. Um, (laughs) but, um, the, the volume, it looks like will be covered by things like this app and situational. They literally have a customized, every team has a customized iPad that was sent to them by major league baseball with these sounds built in. Um, and they're customized by team. And apparently now we can augment this by, um, um, this app, as well as um, I believe we're able to record videos that they'll show on the screens for the players. And um, of, of course, there are the cardboard cutouts in the stands as well. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting. You know, I, one of the issues, of course, is if people go to the games, whether that's baseball or football or basketball, they're in close proximity to one another. They're standing up, they're cheering, and it's just not a good environment to Uh, to keep COVID-19 away. But there is, uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, a company is making a drone that can disinfect an entire stadium in three hours. Now, I don't know if that's while people are in the stadium or after they've gone, but this drone can be used indoors and outside. Uh, According to the report in Fox News, researchers have developed a new coronavirus-era drone that can disinfect an entire sports stadium. Um, Aries Fog Company, which is based in Wexford, Pennsylvania, said the machine utilizes electrostatic technology to sanitize large areas by discharging cleaner through its nozzle, which attacks um, both ground surfaces and underneath seats and other surfaces like railings. It can spray up to 20 acres per hour. If this wasn't going to be something that's uh, going away in a short period of time, I'm sure they're referring to the coronavirus, there needs to be a solution to get people back 
to the things they enjoy doing. That's a quote from the co-founder. He founded the company along with the entrepreneur Justin uh, Mallinson and Eric Lloyd, Nick Brucker. Aries Fogg says that the drone can be used indoors and out, that any cleaned area can be safely occupied three minutes after it is sprayed. So that's the answer to that question. The company recently tested the drone system on Pittsburgh's Highmark Stadium and expects to have all the required certifications by this fall. So there you have it. Would you uh, inhabit a stadium that had been disinfected by this uh, particular drone? I mean, I think at this point, uh, especially where we're at with the with the uh, with the you know, the disease at this point, it, it's I think the you know, large crowd thing is probably not the world's greatest idea. Uh, but if you're in a situation where, like, for example, baseball in Korea um, are just now in some of their stadiums going to be allowing some fans in, I think about 10 percent of the stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in a situation like that where you have good social distancing, um, you know, when you have 20,000 seats and you're only putting 10 percent of the crowd in, that's that's adequate social distancing in my mind. Um, as long as you have that, yeah, I'd be OK with it. But yeah, you, need, and I, you need that kind of thing right now. I would not want to sit in a stadium of 50,000 seats and 50,000 people. I don't oh, care how much not. disinfectant you're bathing me in. It's going to be a limited capacity, but as things open up and referring to uh, sporting events, that's probably how it's going to uh, happen, being socially distanced, and those uh, those stadiums are not going to be filled to capacity for a very, very long time. But for baseball, where a significant part of their revenue comes from the crowd – I think getting to that point is really important to them. I heard a figure yesterday. It was in the billions, I thought, maybe not. Um, the money lost just from having crowds. You've got the vendors and, of course, the ticket prices and all of that. NFL is a different story. They rely on other things. But in some sports, it's important to have seats in the seats. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, It, is, it will be in the billions for Major League Baseball. That, yeah, um, that's what I it's, thought. I, it's a couple hundred million per team. And there are 30 teams, Ouch. so it's it's pretty uh, 32 teams. Uh, so, I mean, it's pretty bad. It might be the unluckiest instructional video ever, but footage of two Japanese amusement park executives demonstrating how to scream inside your heart to avoid spreading COVID-19 while on a roller coaster has been a roaring success. Silent screams. Now our customers stay silent while riding on roller coasters, they say. This is a spokesperson for the amusement park operator. Uh, let's see, it's Fuji Kiyoki. Um, after the video on riding etiquette for the coronavirus era went viral. Well, the video features the executives, one in a full suit and tie, the other in a shirt and bow tie, sitting stiff-backed and straight-faced in silence with only um, the sounds coming from the whipping of the wind and the grinding of the roller coaster as they plunge downward, one executive, executive rather serenely readjusts his hair and his face mask, but both otherwise remain stoically silent even as they sway violently on the coaster car. Now they're saying, we want you to come back to the amusement park, we want you to ride the roller coaster, but you need to do so silently. Is that humanly possible, depending on the roller coaster, to remain silent? That might work in Japan. It would definitely not work here. No, I don't see how that would work here. They really don't. Yeah, I don't know that I could, trying to apply some discipline, ride a roller coaster without spontaneously erupting into a blood-curdling scream at various uh, points along the way. But they're going to try it. I'm not a a blood-curdler on a roller coaster, but you can't hold back either. I think that's the thing. It, it's the ability to hold back, yeah. whatever that may be, because it, it may just be that you want to yell at the top of your lungs, woohoo. I mean, you know, obviously with more enthusiasm and energy, but, uh, you know, or anything like that. It's 
you know, this is awesome, you know, that type of stuff. And yeah, to be able to hold that back consciously is tough. Yeah, it just begs for uh, loud noises. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend joining me for these uh, next couple of segments. So stay with us. It's Fun Friday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Friday edition of The Georgine Rice Show, which means James Blend has joined me on air for the next uh, couple of segments. Uh, good to have you with us, James. Good well, to be scientists here. at MIT have digitally manipulated video and audio to create a creepy deep fake of President Nixon's delivering a speech that would have been used in the event that the Apollo 11 was a disaster. It was written in 1969, and the contingency speech was to be used if NASA astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were unable to return from the moon. The video is part of a project entitled An Event of Moon Disaster, not in the event, but an event of moon disaster that aims to highlight the dangers of deep fakes, which use artificial intelligence and machine learning to create false but realistic looking clips. Now, this is fascinating to me. It's also a bit horrifying to consider. You can create such realistic uh, images of someone who is not in the video, who is not speaking, um, that it's utterly convincing. Now, I think about revelations. I think about how how you could deceive large swaths of people. But this contingency speech was to be used if NASA mission failed, and they've now made it into a video created by MIT. Well, doctored videos have been in the spotlight recent in uh, recent years, I should say. In 2019, for example, video clips of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi were manipulated to falsely depict her as um, drunk, which sparked outrage. Well. An event of moon disaster is part of what MIT describes as a digital storytelling project. The initiative is the brainchild of MIT Center for Advanced Virtuality. By harnessing AI and artificial intelligence and machine learning, scientists are merging Nixon's face with the movements of an actor reading the speech that thankfully was never delivered. MIT also worked with voice conversion technology specialist um, re-speecher is what they're calling it, uh, to produce synthetic speech. AI specialist Canny AI uh, helped replicate the movement of Nixon's mouth and lips, according to a statement released by MIT. Media misinformation is a longstanding phenomenon, but exacerbated by deepfake technologies and the ease of disseminating content online. It's become a crucial issue of our time. That's a quote from the professor of digital media and of artificial intelligence at MIT and the director of MIT Center for Advanced Virtuality in a statement. He went on to say, in uh, Event of Moon Disaster, previewed last fall as an art installation at the International Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam, where it was um, awarded the special jury prize for digital storytelling. It was also selected for the 2020 Tribeca Film Festival and Cannes XR. Now, as part of this project, Scientific American has also produced a new documentary to make a deep, deep fake, which uses in the event of moon disaster to explain deep fakes what they are. Um, Nixon's speech was written by presidential speechwriter William Sapphire, according to Space.com. The speech was delivered to Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, and is now at the Nixon Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Linda, California. In 2018, former NASA astronaut Frank Borman told Fox News that he was also involved in preparing that speech, uh, which was never delivered until 2020. So this is – it's uh, really fascinating, but it's also, again – kind of terrifying when you consider how this could be misused and abused. 
convict. I mean, it's it's worse than Facebook and um, some of these other uh, social media outlets where false information is posted breathlessly as if true. And, um, you know, here you have an individual whose voice you're hearing, whose face you're seeing, delivering a message that they uh, never delivered, saying something that's either consistent with what we know to be true of them or wholly inconsistent. And uh, the the potential to persuade large swaths of people is just enormous. All I could think of is the things I would do with your voice. <laughs> well, that the alone things, is a reason as, not to as the producer of the show, <laughs> I would never need I would never ever need a best of when you're not here. I could just <laughs> ultimately manipulate past shows, use the audio, lift things out, and not only you know just create new interviews. Wow. I mean, you Can know, you also I, eliminate mistakes like uh, the one I made earlier this week when I said Neil Goldschmidt was uh, one of the first men on the moon? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll have to ask Janet Reno. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, I said on the air many years ago that she was involved in a um, wardrobe malfunction. That, of course, was Janet Jackson. That's the perils of, you know, doing a talk show day after day. Week I mean, the week. resemblance was remarkable at the time. There's not there, <laughs> Janet there's Reno, no, you know. Janet Jackson. Well, you're you're right. You can see how I made the mistake. I it was completely understandable. Quite frankly, over the years, I'm just shocked more people haven't done it. <laughs> oh, speaking of technology, a Scottish lawmaker's uh, video went viral after his cat photobombed his Zoom meeting. Now we're not just talking about a couple of friends chatting on Zoom. We're talking about an official meeting in Scotland. He says, I apologize for my cat's tail, which, by the way, was the only thing that appeared in the video. This is uh, parliamentarian John Nicholson speaking to his fellow politicians. Uh, this uh, Scottish um, politician had been uh, seen his social media presence soar after his pet cat photobombed his Zoom meeting. And the lawmaker is keeping it in perfect perspective. Earlier in the week, uh, Parliament member John Nicholson was in the middle of a committee discussion on children's television when the cat, Rojo, by the way, suddenly jumped in front of the camera, waving his tail. Now, you didn't see anything of the cat except for his tail that suddenly appeared in front of the politician. Well, this uh, Nicholson, who's a member of the Scottish Parliament, uh, is uh, was photobombed by his cat during the committee discussion. Uh, I apologize for my cat's tail, he said, before eventually pushing the animal out of the camera view while admonishing the frisky feline. Other parliament members in the meeting could be heard laughing during that clip, which quickly went viral, according to the Scottish Sun. After Rojo's um, cameo went uh, with public, Nicholson discovered he had a whole bunch of new followers on Twitter. However, he astutely realized they weren't there for him. So, you know, he had his 15 seconds of fame. You know, Zoom, uh, I think when this is all over and we resume having face-to-face meetings, they're going to be... Hundreds of thousands of stories being told by people who were in Zoom meetings, who observed the behavior of others, who found themselves surprised by their own failure to realize they were on camera. And we'll all have a good belly laugh. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, I have not so far. I mean, I've had certainly my share of Zoom meetings. And I'm if I chuckle here, it's because I'm literally watching this cattail. Um, (laughs) But uh, the. The, the reality of it is is it's it's hard to prevent everything from happening i've had um i've had something fall off the wall that that's happened um i've had a in the background i've had a a, a um a frame fall off the wall um and uh but uh, usually it's typically my daughter deciding she wants to visit and sit on my yeah, lap suddenly showing up 
and yeah. she does not want to leave. <laughs> and I'm trying to find the the most subtle way of you know getting to mute my mic, hollering for my wife, and to to come get her because she won't leave. And I'm trying. Come on, I'm in the middle of a meeting, <laughs> um, and you know it just doesn't work. And then you know there are, there are talk show hosts when that happens that just encourage it. So you know. No well, names. once I see her little face, I can't help but want to talk to her over talking to you. Sorry. Oh, Sorry I, I understand that preference entirely. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, that's how I feel about talking to Dan. And I should say that when Dan Rice enters the room, I get the yep. same reaction. So oh, very much. I always say, tell, tell my favorite Rice hello. <sighs> yeah, tell your favorite Rice hello. Well, the Ukrainian journalist said the incident was probably my most curious experience in 20 years as a presenter. Well, this new anchor, um, news anchor kept her cool when her tooth fell out during a live broadcast. Uh, she showed grace under pressure when she lost part of her tooth during the live broadcast. She was reading the news live on Ukraine's TSN channel when a piece of her tooth, well, just fell out. Ever the pro, she didn't interrupt her broadcast or even call attention to it. Instead, she casually put her hand in front of her mouth, grabbed the piece of her tooth and continued as normal. She later posted a clip on Instagram writing in Ukrainian that the incident was probably her most curious experience in 20 years as a presenter. According to a translation of her post, she said that she first broke the tooth 10 years ago when she was uh, when her daughter accidentally hit her in the mouth with a heavy metal alarm clock. Oh, dear, there's a story there. And although she recently had a radical repair on the tooth, she said she'd forgotten to avoid hard foods until it was completely fixed. Well, in her um, Instagram post, the anchor said she appreciated the support she had received from viewers and the compliment from a co-worker who said, you reacted as if you lost your tooth every day, which, of course, she doesn't. So anyway, kind of a funny incident uh, using technology in front of other people, although in this case, not Zoom. And that'll cap hey, it off for the news today. <laughs> we're we're going to take a break. Um, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon with James Blend. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. James Blend joining me to uh, take a look at the lighter side of the news. Did you hear this, James? Hear what? Finger licking printing. KFC is creating an entirely new restaurant concept, which begins with a rather futuristic premise, 3D printed chicken. Okay. The international fast food chain has announced it is launching the development of 3D bioprinting technology capable of creating chicken meat in a partnership with 3D bioprinting solutions research laboratory in Moscow, Russia. The so-called meat of the future was dreamed up in response to the growing popularity of a healthy lifestyle and nutrition, the annual increase in demand for alternatives to traditional meat, and the need to develop more environmentally friendly methods of food production. 3D printing. Well, according to a study by the American Environmental Science and Technology Journal, they reported in the release uh, growing meat from cells can uh, cut greenhouse gases 25-fold and use 100 times less land than traditional meat. The lab hopes to be the first to create lab-grown chicken nuggets that resemble the real thing, okay, resemble the real thing in both taste and appearance. The printing method reported uses um, chicken cells, plant materials to reproduce a product similar in taste and texture to an actual KFC product, complete with breading and the iconic 11 herbs and spices. Which one wonders, are they actual herbs and spices or are these 3D-generated, uh, <laughs> yeah, Spices. So a final product is slated to be tested in the fall 
in Russia. Are you in? That's a no from me, I think. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I think my, my tolerance for non-organic, and by organic I mean, you know, uh, of, of God, if you will, um, <laughs> chicken, um, I, I think the only outside tolerance I have is for the always humorous rubber chicken. Uh, but um, not as a food item, uh, as a practical joke device, perhaps. But uh, well, maybe the, that's what this is intended to be—a practical joke. I mean, I I would certainly think so. Um, speaking of uh, you know, speaking of chicken and fake chickens and whatnot, uh, I have to ask you know, in this days of quarantine, uh, have you heard about the worst chicken? The who chicken? The worst chicken. No. The worst chicken. This is one of those YouTube phenomenon uh, viral. Are you videos. saying worst or W U R S T? Neither. Uh, okay. Cross, if you will, the words worship and chicken. The worst chicken. And what the worst chicken does is it, he is a singing rubber chicken that does uh, worship songs on YouTube. Okay, I think we're done there. Yeah, there. That's. Uh, I mean. Yeah. Uh, thank you. This shows how the depths wow. of boredom uh, you get in quarantine. <laughs> So when you're then, feeling bad, when you're feeling bad about how bored you are at any given moment, you can go, at least I'm not making videos of a rubber chicken singing worship songs on YouTube. Yeah, there is that. Then there's this. Chick-fil-A changes its name to gen- gender neutral they filet. Okay, this, <laughs> this is a Babylon Bee article, but I thought it was hilarious. Chick-fil-A is no longer going to be Chick-fil-A. They're going to change their name to they filet. Uh, Chick-fil-A has come under fire for its offensive gendered name since chick is a crude way to refer to a biologically biologically female individual of the human species. Effective immediately, all Chick-fil-A stores will be renamed they-fil-A using an accepted gender-neutral pronoun rather than the archaic term chick. The term chick is an outdated word that has no place in modern society. We are sorry for any hurt we have caused to the female individuals patronizing our business, said CEO Dan Cathay before stopping and shining his shoes um, uh, the shoes of a reporter interviewing him. Would you like me to wash your car too? anything you want? Well, it goes on from there. But <laughs> of course, now let me just say very clearly, this is a spoof. Uh, this is not going to happen. Chick, of course, refers to the chicken, uh, not a woman. Uh, but I just thought it was a hilarious headline that I read uh, from Babylon B earlier this week. Chick-fil-A changes name to gender neutral. They filet. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. That hey, was, did you yeah. hear did you hear about this guy in Maine? This is in Dover, Foxcroft, Maine. A man who cut his neighbor's garage in half with a sawzall was on friendly terms with the man who built the structure, just not with everyone who lived on the property after he died. Well, he sawed his neighbor's garage in half over a boundary dispute. Gabriel Braun used a land surveyor demarcation between the two lots as a guide to remove half a building sitting on his land when a dispute over the boundary line boiled over. Tracy Braun said Thursday that her husband's actions on the day after Memorial Day marked the latest and they hoped the final step of an often contentious relationship between her family and others in the neighborhood and various inhabitants at the address in recent years. Now, Braun and his family moved back to Dover Foxcroft in 2012 to live in the home where her husband had grown up. Uh, a property that once included a two, uh, 0.23 acres just to the south uh, that is now a different address where a small home was added several decades ago. Well, the Browns' relationship with their neighbors was fine until the former owner um, died uh, in late 2016. 
Well, the wife um, took over sole ownership of that property. And while she became an infrequent resident, uh, the owners of the larger property said relations have been strained with others who have rented or otherwise frequented the building since. When the dad was alive, this was a perfect place to live, she said. As soon as that poor man passed away, this place turned to craziness and chaos. So to resolve the border dispute, he took his sawzall and literally cut the entire structure in half where it met with the border of the property. The remainder of the structure is still standing. It's just that the other half of it that crossed that border, that property line, no longer exists. <laughs> Can you imagine? And did you see any images of this? I have it up in front of me right now. <laughs> it's very exact. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, you know, at first it didn't look like there was quite the halving of it, but uh, yeah, they just went right through it just like if it was a cake and they cut right down the middle. Um, and this is yeah, the, right where the, and this is the creamy center, uh, <laughs> complete with strawberry filling in the middle. But, uh, yeah, this is quite the, now I want a cake. Uh, but, uh, yeah, wow, this is rather fascinating. Well, and I thought it was interesting. The wife said she hoped that now after, you know, they've cut the garage in half and clearly it's no longer usable. She's hoping that things will die down and, you know, relations will improve. I'm not sure that would have been the way to arrive at that goal, but nonetheless, it's cut in half. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's it, it, you look at uh, great moves of aggression in history, and they're usually not followed by peace. <laughs> usually you not. Know, you, you, you spoke yesterday, uh, you know, talking about the, this day in history, uh, the Archduke Ferdinand. Was there a party after that? I don't think so. <laughs> no. No, there was not. The war to end all wars. Well, Amazon has a new cure for long supermarket lines, a smart shopping cart. I'm not sure this is going to resolve the issue, but the cart, which Amazon unveiled last week, uses cameras, sensors, and a scale to automatically detect what shoppers drop in. It keeps a tally and then charges their Amazon account when they leave the store. No cashier is needed. I'm sure grocery workers are thrilled with this idea. It's the latest attempt by Amazon to shake up the supermarket industry and offer a solution to long checkout lines. The online shopping giant opened a cashierless supermarket in Seattle that uses cameras and sensors in their ceiling to track what shoppers grab and charge them as they leave. Amazon.com Inc. They also have roughly 25 cashierless convenience stores with similar technology. Now, the cart, it's called the Amazon Dash Cart, will first show up at the Los Angeles supermarket Amazon is opening later this year. The store is going to have cashiers, but Amazon said it wanted to give shoppers a way to bypass any lines in the future. It could be used at Amazon's Whole Foods grocery chain or other stores if Amazon sells the technology, but there are no plans for either right now. Well, several startups are already making similar smart shopping carts that are being tested in stores, but many require scanning groceries before dropping them in. There's no um, scanning on the Amazon cart. A screen near the handle lists what's being charged, and the cart can detect when something is taken out and have it removed from the bill. So you need to pay close attention to your receipt, I guess. And there's also a way to let the cart know if you need to throw a jacket or purse in the cart so you don't have to uh, carry it around anymore the wave of the future a smart shopping cart i i oh. i mean for one i think as an employee it would be weird not knowing who is and isn't shoplifting and i i mean it's so routine to go through the you know through the through any checkout that i would 
kind of feel like I was shoplifting, even though I wasn't. Yeah, feel kind of funny. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, we're out of time. We're going to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll take a look at some of the headline news and we'll share a conversation. My interview of the week with John Lott, author of Gun Control Myths. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. We'll take a look at some of the headline news and coming up, we'll hear the interview of the week with John Lott, who is the um, uh, president of the Crime and Research Center. He's also the author of Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media and Botched Studies Have Twisted the Fact on Gun Control. That's coming up in our next segment. According to the New York Post, the Senate on Thursday passed a $740 billion defense spending bill that includes a provision to remove the name of Confederate leaders from the military bases, setting up a showdown with the president. And pandemic unemployment benefits inexorably rife with fraud may not be continued if there's a new plan in place. An FBI is using defensive briefing in 2016 to spy or rather used it in spying on Donald Trump's uh, campaign and Donald Trump himself. And the president has ended the Obama socially engineered affirmatively furthering fair housing rule. Joe Biden made um, racist comments while accusing Trump of being a racist, saying people don't make a distinction from a South Korean and someone from Beijing. Michigan, Minnesota, and Texas, three races that will decide who controls the Senate. That's coming up, of course, November. Wall Street Journal boldly vows not to uh, wilt under the cancel culture pressure or yield to conformity and intolerance, putting its foot down. And Major League Baseball's New York Yankees and Washington Nationals knelt before the national anthem. Mixed response from the public, who was, of course, not present. Cleveland Indians, they're meeting with Native Americans on potential new names and nailed it. The Washington Redskins are going to use the Washington football team name for 2020, working on, you know, an alternative. In landmark speech, Secretary Pompeo says China is the world's biggest threat. The FBI is interviewing Chinese visa holders suspected of hiding military ties and 186,700 illegal immigrants from 130 nations were stopped by coronavirus border closure. The U.S. has surpassed 4 million recorded cases of COVID-19. The CDC says actual figures are likely 10 times higher since most people who have it are asymptomatic. How long will immunity uh, be to the coronavirus? Um, How long will it last? Well, it may depend on the severity and the corresponding antibody response. In other words, we don't know. A Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Workers are getting laid off anew as um, the PPP money is running out. Too little, too late. Well, the NBA will shutter the Chinese training center that's in the same city as Muslim concentration camps. It took that for them to uh, to close them down. And Tesla, they're going to build their new generation gigafactory in a tax-friendly state of Texas. Do as I say, not as I do. The D.C. mayor exempts many city and federal government workers from strict new mask orders. Apparently, they're able to suspend the science once again. And cancel culture, there's a fallout. The majority of Americans, 62 percent, say they're afraid of expressing their political beliefs. Redwood City, California, removed a Black Lives Matter street painting after a request for MAGA 2020 mural. If you want to get rid of uh, things, just come up with the opposite message and they'll remove uh, the original. A judge has denied Ghislaine Maxwell her request for a gag order to stop the Department of Justice from discussing her alleged crimes. Judge says no. And out of his uh, world 4K video shows Mars 
in ultra high definition. You can find that at the New York Post and I suppose online as well. It is fascinating to see uh, as the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, here at home, a federal judge on Thursday issued a 14-day order temporarily barring federal officers from using force, threats, and dispersal orders against journalists or legal observers documenting the daily demonstration in downtown Portland. Now, that doesn't say those who are actively attempting to deface or otherwise damage the federal facility, only journalists and legal observers. Well, during a hearing earlier in the day, U.S. District Judge Michael Simon quoted case law from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals saying, when wrongdoing is underway, officials have great incentive to blindfold the eyes of the fourth estate. The free press is the guardian of the public interest and the judiciary is the guardian of the press. Attorney Matthew Borden, representing the American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon, urged the judge to stop the federal agent's occupation of Portland and submitted a, at least a dozen statements from journalists, photojournalists and legal observers who have suffered shots uh, to the back, neck, legs from impact munitions fired by federal officers. Now, distinguishing them from the angry mob may be part of the challenge here, and if they're being used as uh, journalists shields. That's another issue that's being uh, considered. These are not accidents. He went on to say these are not inadvertent shots, Borden said. These are acts of intimidation by a tyrant and they have no place in the city. Well, Simon, temporarily the restraining order for federal officers is similar to one he granted earlier this month, governing Portland police, except for one major difference that allows for individual federal officers or supervisors to be held liable if they intentionally disregard his rule. Meanwhile, more than 2,000 people flooded downtown Portland overnight during the 57th day of protests here in Oregon's largest city, where President Trump has deployed federal agents despite the city's outspoken opposition to the move. Now, I'm not entirely sure that deploying federal agents is accurate because the agents were already here and they already have a charge to protect federal property. But nonetheless, I'm quoting uh, the Oregonian. Just hours after the federal judge blocked U.S. agents from arresting or using physical force against journalists and legal observers, uh, agents appeared to deploy tear grass early Friday to force thousands of demonstrators from crowding around the federal courthouse. At least 100 agents were on the ground during some portion of the night. Following a larger Black Lives Matter rally, demonstrators faced off against federal officers at the courthouse as they have day after day. I say day because it's late night, early morning. Well, the United Nations has urged the U.S. to stop using what critics say is excessive force on protesters and journalists during ongoing demonstrations in cities, including Portland. Now, we mentioned yesterday in my interview uh, that uh, the attorney representing the Floyd family has called upon the international community to weigh in on the uh, the trial of the three officers responsible or being held responsible for the death of George Floyd. And here we have the United Nations speaking up and into the situation. Is it uh, is it possible? Is it likely? Is it possible that the United Nations would send some sort of peacekeeping force uh, to the United States, say, around November when things really heat up? It's an open question, but it doesn't seem quite as ridiculous as it did just weeks ago. Uh, Liz Trossel, who's a U.N. human rights spokeswoman, said at a news briefing in Geneva on Friday, there have been reports that peaceful protesters have been detained by unidentified police officers and that a weary uh, that a worry because it may place those detained outside the protection of the law and may give rise to arbitrary detention and other human rights violations. The authorities should ensure that federal and local security forces deployed are properly and clearly identified and would use force only when necessarily necessary proportionately and in accordance with international standards. Now, this, of course, is adopting the line on one side of the argument and not 
the defense that's been offered by those on the other side. So it's rather interesting, the U.N. weighing in uh, to protests taking place, not just in Portland, but other places around the country. Meanwhile, a group of Republican House members led by Representative Louis uh, Gohmert of Texas introduced a resolution Thursday that would uh, effectively ban the Democratic Party from the House or force the party name change over past slavery ties. It's a response to the recent efforts to remove tributes to past members of the Confederacy from the halls of Congress. It specifically cites the Democratic Party platform, support for slavery between 1840 and 1856, and other racist actions by party members through the early to mid-1900s before calling on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to remove any items that name, symbolize, or mention any political organization or party that has ever held a public position that supported slavery or the Confederacy from the House and its properties. The resolution also says such a party shall either change its name or be barred from participation in the House of Representatives. Gohmert, uh, in a statement accompanying the bill, told Democrats they should rebrand to avoid triggering anyone. Well, it goes on from there. (laughs) You kind of have to chuckle because in cancel culture, this is perfectly reasonable. In reasonable culture, maybe not so much. Biden tops Trump in a battleground state of Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, which is an interesting figure given the fact that we know that most people, 60 plus percent, are unwilling to state their true feelings. So are the polls accurate? Well, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden leads President Trump in the battleground states of Michigan, Minnesota and Pennsylvania. According to a statewide registered voter survey, Biden uh, benefits from strong support among women, non-white voters and those living in suburban areas, while Trump suffers from lackluster performance among men and white voters. Again, is this accurate? We don't know. Uh, But this is the latest poll that suggests Biden tops Trump. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear my conversation with John Lott, his book, Gun Control Myths. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Dr. John Lott, has few equals as uh, perceptive analyst of controversial public policy issues. That's a quote from Milton Freeman, who's a Nobel laureate, um, talking about uh, John Lott and the role that he has played in helping us understand and discuss controversial issues with, uh, with reason and with facts. Dr. Lott is the president of Crime Prevention Research Center, an economist and a world-recognized expert on guns and crime. He's held research or teaching positions at various academic institutions and was the chief economist at the United States Sentencing Commission. He holds a PhD in economics from UCLA. As I mentioned, Milton Friedman said it best when he said that he is a perceptive analyst of controversial public policy issues, and we're going to talk about one of them here today. Dr. Lott is a prolific author for both academic and popular publications. He's published over 100 articles in peer-reviewed academic journals, and this is his 10th book we'll be talking about today, Gun Control myths. His previous nine books included More Guns, Less Crime, The Bias Against Guns, and uh, Freedomnomics, and many, many others. Uh, He joins us today to talk about his latest book that blows away one false myth about gun ownership after another. Myths about mass public shootings, to suicide, to gun ownership rates, to crime, to gun-free zones. He addresses the claims you frequently hear in the media, and he explains what's wrong with those claims. Dr. Lott, it is such an honor to have you with us. Welcome. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks. Uh, you, uh, the, the book begins with a foreword from a familiar name to many of us, Andrew Pollack, who is the author of Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's 
uh, students. And he begins by writing, I was never big on Second Amendment. I was never a big Second Amendment supporter, rather, until my daughter Meadow was murdered on the third floor of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland school shooting. I think his opening line uh, reflects what a lot of people think until an event occurs. They're suddenly interested, but perhaps uh, only have a collection of anecdotal information or evidence as to the, the use and abuse of guns uh, to inform their thinking on what ought to be done in response. Um, why why have this as your forward? Well, I mean, I think uh, Andrew's uh change in views over time. Uh, you know, I've, I've also changed my views a lot over time with regard to the gun issue. Uh, our transformations were a little bit different. I mean, obviously he had that incredibly horrible, tragic event where uh, his daughter was murdered. Uh, for me, it was more a question of just kind of looking at the data and and seeing that a lot of the things that I thought were true weren't true. I mean, I'm sure I was affected as much by the media coverage as anybody on the, on the gun issue. Um, but you know, it's, uh, Andrew's change in views is something that's actually fairly common. The main reason why most Americans own guns is for self-protection and, and probably one of the very most important reasons, uh, in terms of kind of percentages of people who have guns for protection is because they've been victims of crime. Uh, so they know kind of firsthand that they wish that they had some way of protecting themselves uh, when uh, such a crime occurred. And, you know, in Andrew's case, I'm sure he wishes that uh, others at uh, Stoneman Douglas High School uh, had been also able to protect themselves. And yet there are those who would suggest that it's only law enforcement that should have access to guns and to decide when to shoot. In fact, Michael Bloomberg uh, in January of this year, made that very statement suggesting that even though the unarmed were victims in uh, mass shootings, that law enforcement, who in some cases either weren't present or were not responsive uh, quickly enough, weren't able to protect them. Well, I mean, he was talking about specifically about uh, the mass public shooting that was stopped uh, at the church near Fort Worth at the end of last December. Uh, he was saying those true uh, concealed care permit holders uh, stop the shooting, but, uh, you know, we should just rely on the police to be able to go and stop these attacks. The problem is, you know, we have a little bit over 600,000 police in the United States. Uh, you don't have more than 250,000 on duty at any point in time. Uh, and we have 330 million people. It's simply impossible for the police to be every place all the time. And Look, anybody who's read my research knows uh, that I think police are extremely important in reducing crime. Yes. Indeed, you know, I think that I think police, from my research, are the most important factor for reducing crime. But something that the police understand themselves, and that is they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occurred. And that's even under the best of circumstances. Uh, unfortunately, nowadays, the job that police has is even much more difficult than it's been before. I mean, we have, uh, you know, you're in Portland, uh, obviously, uh, you know, the situation with uh, police standing down and not doing their jobs. Uh, you have many parts of the country where uh, parts police units are being disbanded, budgets are being cut. Uh, it seems pretty simple to understand that 
if you want to reduce crime, you make it riskier for criminals to commit crime. And the way you do that is by increasing arrest rates, increasing. Yeah, here's the irony. The irony is that the very same politicians like Bloomberg, who in the past have said, you know, you shouldn't defend yourself. You should depend on the police. You have a lot of Democrats now who are saying uh, you should depend on the police, but we're going to order the police not to help you or they're not going to be available to help you. There's a whole range of myths. Simple example is what should people do when they're having to confront a criminal? Um, very frequently, uh, you'll hear the claim in the media that people should behave passively, that that's the safest course of action. And that, that's simply false. Uh, there's a kernel of truth to it, but it's actually extremely misleading. Um, if you uh, look at the passive behavior, is slightly safer than all forms of active resistance lumped together. But it's very misleading to lump all forms of active resistance together because some are much more dangerous than passive behavior and a couple are much safer. So, for example, for a woman, by far the most dangerous course of action for a woman to take is to use her fist. And the reason for that is she's almost always going to be confronted by a male criminal. And there's a large strength differential that exists there. The second most dangerous course of action for a woman to take is to run away. Now, if she can run away and escape, that's great. But unfortunately, women tend to be relatively slower runners on average than men are, particularly for young male criminals who are the ones who are most likely to be doing the attack. In the process of being tackled and subdued um, and resulting violence after that, women are likely uh, to be seriously injured. Uh, when you break down all the different types of active resistance, you find that by far, the safest course of action for anybody, but particularly true for people who are relatively weaker physically, women and the elderly, uh, is to have a gun. Uh, women who behave passively are about 2.4 times more likely to end up being seriously injured than a woman who has a gun. Um, so, I mean, that's just one example of, uh, of the type of information out there in the media that I think actually endangers people's lives. Yeah. Let me ask you about it. Uh, let me ask you about another one that you uh, write about in the book. America, this is the New York Times and Vox.com's claim. America has six times as many firearm homicides as Canada and nearly 16 times as many as Germany. First of all, is that a good comparison? Is it relevant? And is it true? Yeah, well, uh, there are lots of problems with the comparison. I mean, uh, first of all, um, what people don't seem to understand is that homicides aren't the same thing as murders. Um, mur homicides are murders plus. And the United States has a lot more justifiable homicides than any place else in the world, at least as far as the data goes. Most countries don't collect that. There are very few countries that actually report murder rates. They report homicide rates. Uh, probably, you know, over 20 25% of the homicides in the United States are justifiable. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not obvious to me why you want to mix together murders and justifiable homicides. If uh, a woman shoots somebody uh, who's broken into her house at two o'clock in the morning, a rapist, uh, why that should be the same as, let's say, a criminal involved in a robbery going and killing somebody. Um, you know, the second thing is uh, uh, you have to, you know, if you look at total murders, 
you know, you in fact find that the United States is well below the average of the world and well below the median. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, if you look at uh, firearm homicides, one of the problems that you have is that a lot of countries, about half the countries in the world, don't even report firearm homicides. And the reason why they don't report well, the problem with it is that the countries that don't report firearm homicides are the countries that tend to have the highest uh, homicide rates. And so the reason why the United States looks relatively high in terms of firearm homicides isn't because we're particularly high. It's just because the countries with higher rates aren't reporting the data. Uh, so there are lots of problems with that. And, um, uh, you know, I could go on, but it's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that gives you a rough idea of the yeah, issues. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon about with John Lott about the book Guns, Gun Control Myths. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. John Lott. Uh, his latest book, uh, Gun Control Myths, uh, blows away one false myth about gun ownership after another. And we've been talking about a few of them. One that I want you to address is uh, that you mentioned in the book is there have been more than 1,600 mass shootings since Sandy Hook. And on average, there is around one mass shooting for each day in America. First of all, is that a true statement? Uh, that is sadly believed by many people. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you want to go and define it. If you define it in terms of the way the FBI is traditionally in terms of uh, four or more people killed in uh, a public place that's not part of some other type of crime, uh, that's not even remotely close to being true. What these numbers involve would be, um, you know, you could have four people wounded or three people wounded or two, um, and they very frequently involve some type of crime occurring, like a gang fight over drug turf. Now, are gang fights over drug turf important? Yeah, sure. Uh, people don't want gangs fighting against each other and killing people and having stray bullets go all over the place. But what I would argue is that the way that claim is made, it makes people think about school shootings or other types mm -hmm. of shootings that may occur. And that's not what we're talking about here. And the causes and solutions for stopping gang shootings, uh, drug gang shootings, are dramatically different than the causes and solutions for going and stopping things like a mass public shooting at a Walmart or at a, a, a school. And I think it's just improper to kind of go and mix those two numbers together. And the vast majority of the cases uh, that you're just listing out are basically drug gang cases. I mean, you can go and look at murders generally in the United States, which you're picking up a lot with that type of number. And uh, you have over half the murders in the United States take place in just 2% of the counties. And if you go and you look at what's called a murder map where you can go and see kind of how the murders are spread out within those counties, you'll find pretty much about two-thirds of the murders in those counties and that 2% of the counties take place within 10-block areas. So they're very heavily concentrated in tiny areas. And again, it's, it's basically drug gangs uh, fighting against each other over drug turf. Um, so, uh, 
you know, it's, uh, it, it depends on how you want to go and define it. And, um, it's, I'm not saying that those drug gang fights aren't important, but I, I think it's wrong to mix the two together. Yeah, it is certainly misleading. New York Times claims that fewer guns equal fewer deaths. Is that true, uh, or could it be true if we had fewer guns? No, I mean, the opposite's very clearly the case. I mean, I'll just give you a simple example, and that is, can you name me one place in the world, any place in the world, where either all guns or all handguns have been banned, and murder rates have gone down or even stayed the same because I can't find a place and nobody has pointed to a place that I know of. Every single time you've had those types of bans, murder rates have gone up and they've often gone up by very large amounts. And there's a simple point to be made there because uh, you think out of randomness there'd be once where it didn't go up. Uh, that when you go and you have strict gun control regulations, you have to be careful that it's not the most law-abiding disarming relative to criminals. Look, where do criminals get their guns? Uh, probably the most common place for them to go and get them is from drug dealers. You know, drug dealers, it's not like a drug dealer can go to the police and say, look, this other gang stole my drugs. Can you help us get them back? They have, to, they have very valuable property, and they have to essentially set up their own little militaries in order to go and protect that valuable property that they have. So they have lots of guns. And they sell guns just as they go and they sell the drugs that they have. And, uh, you know, if, um, if you think you're going to be any more successful in stopping criminals from getting guns than you've been able to stop criminals from buying illegal drugs, if that's what they want to buy, good luck with that. You know, you want an example of that? Just look at Mexico. Mexico, has had, since 1972, has had one gun store in the country. Uh, the most powerful uh, gun you can buy is a 22 caliber uh, rifle, uh, legally since 1972. Those aren't the types of weapons that uh, drug gangs in Mexico are using. And yet Mexico has a murder rate that's at least six times higher than the murder rate than we have in here in the United States. And... Uh, uh, you know, it's illegal for private transfers of guns. Every, any gun you have to buy has to go through the, uh, the one gun store run by the military in Mexico City. And yet, uh, with the extremely high murder rate, the gangs have no problem getting guns. They bring in guns from around the world just as they go and bring in the drugs from around the world. Uh, and they have the weapons in order to protect the valuable property that they have. You have a chapter on the heroes that the news media doesn't cover. You rarely see the word hero connected with uh, the use of a firearm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because firearms are used extensively in a self-protection of people and property. Right. Well, I mean, uh, the chapter that I have mainly focuses on uh, the heroes who have stopped mass public shootings. Uh, obviously, they're the broader type that you're talking about, but you know, here you have cases uh, where dramatic, heroic actions have taken, and they just don't get anything other than maybe one or two stories in the local news. Um, you know, just last week in Indiana, there was a case where uh, uh, an attacker uh, had shot a couple people, had shot at a third person, uh, a passerby in a car who had a permanent concealed handgun, got out and stopped the person. The police uh, captain uh, who gave a statement to the media said that there was no doubt in her mind that many lives were saved 
as a result of the permit holder that was there and his quick actions. And yet, you know, you're going to search in national news coverage about that case. Um, uh, there are dozens of cases in just the last few years where concealed carry permit holders have stopped what otherwise would have been a mass public shooting. Um, and I can only think of a couple times where those have gotten any national news coverage. And the national media has botched them in both cases. In one case, I mean, people remember the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. Well, three days after that, uh, there was a shooting at a Kroger grocery store in Louisville, Kentucky, where a man went into the grocery store and started shooting blacks who were in the, the store there. And uh, the quote that made the New York Times and would be on ABC, CBS, NBC, Meet the Press, and all the other national shows uh, was that the, the murderer turned to a customer there and said, whites don't shoot whites. And so the impression that the national media gave was that, you know, this murderer was assuring was giving reassurance to this white customer that he had nothing to worry about because the murderer was white and he was white and uh, and the murderer wasn't going to kill him also. The problem was uh, the national media all left out the first part of the murderer's quote and the, and the local media in Louisville covered this, but the first part of the quote was, please don't shoot me, whites don't shoot whites. That rather than the murderer assuring the customer that the customer wasn't going to get shot, the customer, in fact, was a concealed carry permit holder and was pointing his gun at the murderer, and the murderer was begging the customer not to shoot him. And uh, they, in fact, uh, exchanged shots. Uh, The customer seriously wounded uh, the murderer there. The murderer got into his car. Uh, started to drive away, got about a mile down the street before he passed out, uh, and the police arrested him when he was passed out in the car. Uh, but, you know, I at the time, up till that time, I was kind of had a texting relationship with Chuck Todd, uh, the moderator for Meet the Press, and uh, Chuck spent like five minutes on his show on uh, the Louisville thing, kind of emphasizing the racial aspect of it. And I said, you know, Chuck, you're missing the first part of this quote here. Uh, I think it really changes the meaning of uh, what you were getting across because you made no mention of the permit holder who stopped this. And maybe next week you can kind of, uh, you know, correct this. And I sent him links to the local news articles that had the full quote there. And he never corrected it. And uh, he, uh, he, he blocked me after that. Huh. So, um, uh, but, you know, unfortunately, I think, look, I think the entire gun control debate would be dramatically different if two things happened. If one, that once in a while, these stories where people use guns to stop these mass public shootings got some attention. Uh, and they're often very dramatic cases. I mean, I can give you lots of cases. Everybody remembers the Orlando uh, nightclub uh, shooting, the Pulse nightclub. Well, Uh, Just a week after that, in South Carolina, there was almost a similar attack that had occurred. A man had gone into the nightclub that started firing, had wounded several people. And the fourth person he was shooting at had a permanent concealed handgun and, and seriously wounded the attacker. The difference between Florida and South Carolina, though, was Florida 
is one of 10 states that ban people being able to carry permanently concealed handguns into, uh, into places that serve alcohol. Uh, South Carolina is one of the 40 states that allow it. And so, you know, um, but you would think, given the sensitivities to the fact that you just had this big nightclub shooting, which at that time was the worst mass public shooting we had had uh, in U.S. history, you would think that there'd be a little coverage for the South Carolina case, but it got like no coverage. Yeah, it doesn't fit um, the narrative. I can, right. I can give you case after case like that. Uh, uh, and it just, my guess is, as I say, the debate would be very different uh, if even some of those cases got coverage. The other point would be uh, when the media covers mass public shootings, um, they almost always mention two facts. One is, what gun was used and how the person obtained the gun. Often, many times they were wrong in terms of the initial news stories because those are hard pieces of information to get. But the interesting thing is you have 94% of the mass public shootings take place in gun-free zones. And yet you will look in vain to find any of the news articles actually mention that fact. And yet that's probably the simplest thing for the media to go and find out. You would think... If even once in a while the media would mention we've had another yet another mass public shooting in a place where guns are banned, again, I think that would cause people to think, you know, why is it that these killers are purposely trying to target those areas where people aren't able to go and defend themselves? And I think people would understand why they're doing that, because yeah. they, they want to kill as many people as possible. And if they go to a place where people can't defend themselves, uh, it's going to be easier for them to accomplish that. Well, we are out of time. There's so much more that we could cover, but I hope our listeners will pick up a copy of Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botched Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun Control. In fact, you have an entire uh, chapter on one particular study that fooled the world about the U.S. share of mass public shootings, a chapter absolutely worth reading. I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, and I look forward to uh, having a conversation again in the future. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And yeah, I think this is probably one of my best books and I pr appreciate you letting me talk about it. Thank Absolutely. You. People can Absolutely. find more at our website at crimeresearch.org. Crimeresearch.org. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. You know, we're facing some challenges with this global pandemic, but we're not alone. Persecuted Christians are being ordered to renounce their faith or faith rather or lose their COVID-19 aid. It is a tragedy in some parts of the world. We're talking about Southeast Asia, in Sudan, and other places. In the wake of the coronavirus epidemic, Christians in these areas have been ordered by authorities to renounce their faith or risk losing emergency aid, according to numerous reports. Jan Van Meer, Asia Communications Director with Operation Open Doors uh, International, said that Premier News, the organization, has been inundated with reports of Christians telling us their communities would only be given food if they re, uh, reconverted back to their original faith. And while some have returned to the dominant religion in their country, others have contemplated suicide. It is that desperate for them. According to Open Doors, Christians from countries including Bangladesh, India, Sudan, Malaysia, they're being asked to renounce their faith in exchange for COVID-19 aid. Pastor Sam, who coordinates Open Doors' work in Southeast Asia, said in rural Bangladesh, governments are giving assistance to a lot of people, but many Christians, especially those who come from a Muslim background or a Buddhist background, are not receiving the support 
it goes to the villages. The village heads normally discriminate against the Christians. They say, well, you're Christian. You became a Christian, so you can uh, are not part of this support. You're not part of this community. People may die or convert back to Islam if they don't have the means to survive, he says, adding that without the support of Open Doors, which is providing coronavirus relief in the area, many Christians would certainly die of malnutrition and starvation or decide that following Jesus is too hard. Many of these new believers, and we're talking about new believers, only have a fragile faith and need uh, to become stronger in the Lord. So one cannot uh, blame them or, or one shouldn't be surprised at the challenge they face. In Sudan, Christian converts face hunger and homelessness during the lockdown unless they reject their faith and return to Islam, according to Open Doors. A local pastor explained believers from Muslim backgrounds have to be entirely self-reliant because they aren't given any support from their families, their tribes, or community because of their faith. Uh, but because people aren't able to work in lockdown, they don't have money for food and are finding themselves being kicked out of their homes, unable to pay rent. When Christian converts do ask for help from their Muslim community, they're told they have to give up their Christianity if they want to be helped. It is a tragedy, end quote. In East Malaysia, one group of Christian students uh, were told by their local mosque that they would have to convert back to Islam to receive any food aid from the community during the coronavirus lockdown, which gives you just a glimpse into the challenges, not just what we face here, but what others face around the world, but specifically connected to their faith. We are upset because our churches can't come together, but for them, survival is the issue. Remember the persecuted church, support open organizations that minister to persecuted believers around the world, and together we can survive this with our faith intact to the glory of God. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.